Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots, a podcast by the law firm of Ogletree Deacons for employers and those in their legal safety and HR departments who need to better understand OSHA as an agency and the law that governs it. I'm your host, Philip Russell. I'm a shareholder in the Tampa office of the firm. I have a national practice in which I've handled around 200 fatality cases with OSHA and hundreds of other types of cases. We have one of the largest workplace safety and health practice groups in the country. We cover all 50 states with extensive experience with Fed OSHA and state OSHA plans as well. Our approach is simple, but perhaps not easy. We help clients avoid or minimize OSHA citations and improve safety. This podcast is about education, not about legal advice for specific circumstances. As an employer, it is important for you to know what you can and cannot do, but also know what OSHA can and cannot do. You can't hope to hold the agency accountable to the law if you don't know something about the law. So hopefully this will be helpful to you all. I'm joined today by my good friend and colleague, our shareholder here in the Tampa office, Deanna Hayes. Hi, Deanna. Hi, Philip. Thank you for having me. So the title of this one, of course, it's getting hot, hot, hot. The heat is turned up in Florida. It is getting hotter as it usually does. I think the other day it was 90. So uh, here in Florida, we're sitting in our Tampa office. We're going to talk about heat illness and what OSHA has been doing. We've now had about a year to live with a national emphasis program, over a year uh, that OSHA has said, and we're still waiting on whether or not OSHA is going to issue a new standard for heat illness, both outdoor and indoor. So why don't we start with uh, number one, quick introduction for yourself. So tell us about your practice and what you do, what you focus on. Sure, thanks Philip, and thanks everyone for joining us today. So as Philip said, I'm in the Tampa office as well. A significant portion of my practice involves helping clients with OSHA inspections. I've handled a countless number of them. And lately we have had a growing number of inspections that involve heat here in Florida. And in fact, we've been told by our friends in the local Florida OSHA offices that heat will be a component if in most, if not every OSHA inspection in the state going forward. And we're certainly seeing that play out here in Florida. Yeah, indeed. Both of us have handled these. Uh, in fact, what we'll go over in just a few moments is every inspection that I handled in 2022, and I know this is true for you too, every inspection I handled also turned into a heat inspection. And we'll explain to our uh, listeners how that happened uh, through the National Emphasis Program. So we're going to talk today primarily about Fed OSHA. We're going to talk a lot about Florida because we're here and, hey, it's hot. It's Sunshine State. <laughs> uh, so, but we, are, we don't mean to exclude anybody in the state plans. There are three states out there, California, Minnesota, and Washington, that have adopted their own standards so far. Um, maybe others. That's the three I've got off the OSHA list. And Oregon also. Oregon. Okay. All right. There you go. So if you're in those states, uh, certainly want to look towards your state plan. Cal OSHA, our friends Kevin Bland and Karen Tynan are all over what's going on out there in California. Doug Parker is the head of Fed OSHA. He came from Cal OSHA. So a lot of what we are expecting to be in the proposed standard when it comes uh, for Fed OSHA will likely mirror what has been done in California. 
So let, let's jump right into inspections, Deanna. And all this flows from April of 2022 when OSHA issued this national emphasis program. And it did so because it didn't have a standard. It was just using the general duty clause for citations and inspections and needed to give some guidance out to its field. And it did so by this national emphasis program in which it gave some guidance to area offices around the country about how to conduct inspections, what to focus on, when the inspections might be triggered, and those sort of things. So we'll dive into that in just a moment. But quick update, newsflash. Have we heard anything from OSHA on a proposed standard? No, it's been crickets. Yeah, exactly. I, I thought we would have something by now. I think a lot of OSHA watchers thought the same thing. You know, they issued their advance notice of proposed rulemaking in October of 2021. So it's been a while. Uh, we thought we would see a, a notice of proposed rulemaking between then and now, and it just hasn't materialized. Now, hey, we're in the middle of the political season. And I will say this, I think the folks at OSHA know that they've got a limited shot clock. You know, whether there's a continued Biden administration or not, uh, one way or the other, I think they know it. So I expect that our friends at OSHA are probably working diligently to see if they can get one out. I'm going to go ahead and say this year, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it's certainly possible. And I think one of the reasons for the delay that Philip and I have discussed potentially is OSHA's past reliance on the heat index when it comes to citations related to heat illness. And many of those have been challenged and OSHA has lost. So it looks like they may be reworking some of the science behind their guidance. And we'll talk about that a little further. But I did want to remind those listeners who maybe are new to us about the general duty clause. So all employers have a duty to keep employees safe from known and recognized hazards. So like Philip said, that's been the vehicle that OSHA uses to cite employers. And you know, as a reminder, if you've got uh, more than one employee, then you're covered by that. So it's the same clause that OSHA used to cite employers under COVID. Yeah, general duty clause says that employers must maintain a workplace free from recognized hazards. OSHA takes the view that heat is a recognized hazard. Maybe, maybe not, but that's their view. Now, bear in mind, folks, as we always talk about here on the podcast, OSHA doesn't decide if OSHA got it right. So just because OSHA says something violates a general duty clause doesn't make it so. There is a review commission. It is named similarly the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, but it is not part of OSHA. It is not even part of the Department of Labor, and it's not even part of the Department of Justice, which was a question I had the other day. Mm -hmm. So it is an independent agency that decides whether OSHA got it right or not. And there have been some litigation. We've gone over this in prior webinars and podcasts in which OSHA lost the cases under the general duty clause in part. <laughs> well, speaking of heat, there's some heat lightning. Welcome to Florida. Uh, but there have been cases in which OSHA was lost because it was not approaching things the right way when it came to a recognized hazard. But right now, what's interesting, let's talk about one of the changes. So in the National Emphasis Program, it was very heavy on looking at the heat index as a trigger for when an employer would have a recognized hazard of in the environment being too hot for work in the normal fashion and some abatement measures need to be put in place. And the heat index, they actually have an app mm -hmm. that they developed with NIOSH that you can pull up on your phone, but the heat index only combined two things, air temperature and humidity. But if you go to OSHA's webpage right now and look at 
the same, look for the same information, you will find that OSHA de-emphasizes the heat index and shifts over to this thing called the wet bulb globe temperature. And there's a device they have a picture of that looks like something out of a Star Trek episode <laughs> from the 70s. <laughs> so it looks a little weird, but wet bulb globe temperature is something that employers really need to get to, to understand. Because when you, what I read on this is what might come in the standard, Deanna. I look at the web page that OSHA has and I see a heat stress calculator. I see other information about heat related illness and first aid and prevention. And when you look at their resources, it's all about the wet bulb globe temperature which does what? It adds a couple of items. It's not just air temperature and it's not just humidity, but it's also adds in radiant heat from sunlight or artificial heat sources because it can also be indoor like furnaces. Mm -hmm. And then air movement, which is wind, because sometimes wind might help work cool workers off. So what OSHA has said is that we recommend the use of the wet bulb globe temperature monitor to measure workplace environmental heat not so much the heat index. And I think that's a move in the right direction for OSHA. They, with the heat index, the million dollar question has been how hot is too hot and how do employers really know that? And I've played around with the app on OSHA's website that relates to the heat index. And here in Florida, you've always got a problem according to that app. I mean, it doesn't matter what month it is. I think generally the temperature is about 80 degrees that can be the trigger. And you can have that any month of the year here in Florida. So a lot of clients that I talk to are really frustrated with the app and saying, you know, we're basically on red alert all the time when it comes to this. And I think that the move to this new standard with the heat stress calculator on OSHA's website is helpful because it considers some of the same things that experts have looked at when I've handled heat stress inspections. So it's not just the temperature and humidity. It takes into account, you know, what type of work is this worker doing? Are they acclimatized? Have they been working in this environment? What kind of clothing are they wearing? What, what do they weigh? And all that gives a better picture of what's actually going on than just looking at a heat index. Yeah, and you're referencing this heat stress calculator that OSHA has on their page, which really, without any fanfare or announcement at all, mm -hmm. shows up. But it does, I think, give us a bit of an, a, a perhaps a glimpse into things to come about what may be in that standard. Things related to not only the wet bulb globe temperature, but the workload, the acclimatization status, how much clothing they are wearing, and then body weight. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, there's only two choices on body weight, normal or obese. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> no mm, gray area. I'm afraid of which one I might fit in. Um, so well, let's talk about what those the trigger. So under the National Emphasis Program from April of 2022, it, it said two types. The programmed, let's skip that. Let's talk about the non-programmed because that's what you and I have seen. The non-programmed is when the OSHA compliance officer is already on site. And I saw it last year multiple times. I had a fall protection cases, trenching cases, crushed by cases, uh, electrical cases, you name it. Mm -hmm. Nothing related to heat. Yet every single one of them turned into a non-programmed heat illness inspection because the National Emphasis Program said that its compliance officers had to do that if the heat index was over 80. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I'm talking about Florida cases here. And again, even around the country, it gets hot. But in Florida, it's over 80 on a heat measure. When you're measuring air temperature and humidity, how many of our 365 days were over 80? 
360. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's hot. So, and so I thought that was a fairly low trigger, but also what surprises a lot of people is the national emphasis program told the each, each of the regional offices to double the number of heat related inspections they do. Mm-hmm. So I know, you know, that's my experience. I've already shared with our audience, but is that what you experienced last year as well? Did every one of your ocean inspections turn into heat? Yes, they did. In fact, I think the most glaring example of that is I had a case that had been opened in 2021. It was open for a while. It was a confined space inspection. And four months into that inspection, OSHA says, oh, hi, we have a second compliance officer that's here today to open a second inspection related to heat. And that was four months after the accident actually happened. Uh, It was the summer when it happened. By the time OSHA got around to opening that second heat-related inspection, it was the fall, and they didn't actually take any measurements until December or January. (laughs) So we said, well, okay, that's perfectly fine because it is actually significantly cooler in Florida in January than it is in certainly in August and even in October. Well, let's talk about another case. So we also are both of us familiar with a case in which an employee had shown up to work. It was early in the day. The worker had not yet even started work and was found to have passed away in a porta potty. But that was an interesting case because OSHA considered that to be and, and con- really did a robust heat illness inspection in that particular matter. But you have to wonder why. Mm-hmm. You know, and it really was this trigger of the air temperature that caused it. Although, as you and I both know, the evidence was very clear in that case that it wasn't work-related. He had not started work, had not engaged in any activity, um, and even though it was hot in the afternoon when the measurement was taken, in the morning it wasn't. Mm -hmm. But this is an example of how OSHA can expand something that seems to not be related to heat into a heat illness inspection. Yeah, yes, that's true. And in that particular inspection, it was a Monday, and part of what the company had discovered is that the employee had gone out of town for a family reunion in Orlando, might have overindulged, et cetera. But there were many, many factors that suggested it had nothing to do with work. Work was just beginning, hadn't even really started yet. An illustration to me, very similar to the other cases I mentioned earlier, where, I mean, trenching, nothing in that trenching case had anything to do with heat. Mm-hmm. Fall protection, same thing, nothing related to heat. Yet all of them turned into a heat illness because the compliance officers had to follow the directive of doubling the number of inspections. Mm-hmm. How do you double? Well, you just take every single one of your inspections and make it two. Absolutely. Well, so let's talk about those inspections because I say that they turned into heat illness inspections, but really I saw a range. Uh, some of the inspections last year went from a simple question of, do you have a heat in- injury and illness program? Uh, Yes, we do. Okay, check the box. Mm -hmm. Some of them were that simple. Sometimes (laughs) the inspections were not very robust. Other times they turned into, like, for example, the ones you brought up, I know both of those cases turned into, uh, it had nothing to do with the original reason why OSHA showed up. It turned into, however, weeks and months worth of having to go through the process of a heat illness inspection. Yes, absolutely. And that's consistent with what I saw, too. And in some of these inspections, like you mentioned, it involved all day monitoring of employees, particularly when there was 
uh, an indoor component as well to the heat stress issue, for instance, welding, right? But it's welding that is primarily based in a warehouse that gets hotter in the summer because the conditions outside are, are hotter as well. So it was interesting to see it develop along those lines. And I would say, you know, like you said, it seemed that sometimes they're checking the box just to make sure that the employer has some kind of program in place. Also at a minimum that if you have employees that are working outside in the heat or that are driving around going to job sites, do they have access to water? Can they take a break when they need one? And sometimes it's as simple as that. And if your employees were consistent in answering, yes, we're allowed to do those things, sometimes that was the end of it. Let's take the next step and talk about citations. So there was one citation that got a lot of attention last year here in Florida. It was under the general duty clause, an agricultural employer uh, with a worker who had a fatal, had a fatality, Mm -hmm. died of heat uh, working in the agricultural field. And what was interesting about that citation, it was ultimately resolved, uh, not one of ours, so I don't know exactly how it was resolved, but what was interesting about the citation was OSHA put into the citation all the feasible means of abatement, which they have to do by law. And what's interesting is that they put in such a huge wide list, but it really was a spectrum of options. And the takeaway there, it seems, was employers that do nothing not only might draw the attention of OSHA for an inspection, but also a citation. Mm-hmm. But employers that do something, employers that make an effort with, with rest, with shade, with water, with acclimatization, which we'll, let's come back to that in a moment. But, you know, also training workers on how to identify the symptoms. Those are things that if an employer has in place, they might still get the inspection, but maybe that reduces the possibility of a citation. I would agree with that 100%. And I would say in the interviews that I was a part of, those questions were asked of every employee and every manager of, do you know the signs and symptoms of heat illness? So that's a good place to start when it comes to training employees. And do you have any employees that are working alone? And if so, is there a means to check in with that employee to make sure that they're okay? So the buddy system is high on OSHA's list. And what do you do if an employee does show those signs and symptoms of heat illness? How are you going to address that? And do your employees know what to do? So getting back to the heat inspection and what OSHA does, my experience has been the same, which is it's not the the more robust inspections were not so much about what you had in your written program. That's frankly not the hard part. Mm -hmm. The hard part is making sure that workers know how to recognize the symptoms when somebody is having heat-related illness. What are the symptoms and signs? And then knowing then what to do and having water, rest, shade available, having emergency uh, resources available. And I like the buddy system. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of our clients do have remote workers, whether construction, landscaping, or others, where they may only be working in groups of one, two, or three, Mm -hmm. and they may be separated for a time. What are they doing to keep an eye on each other? Absolutely. I had an inspection involving a pool cleaner that was working alone. A pool cleaner. Oh, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So there's a good example of how is that person, how is the employer helping that person know when to recognize even his or her own symptoms Mm -hmm. and then do something about it? Absolutely. And in that... um, In that inspection, one of the things that the employer decided to do proactively is to have a check-in call, you know, every 30 minutes with someone who's working alone in the hot summer months. Oh, I like that idea too. Let's talk about reporting real quick, and then we'll talk about acclimatization and then wrap it up. But reporting, when does an employer 
have to report to OSHA? We, we know the four things, right? So fatality, hospitalization, that's inpatient for treatment, not just observation. Yes. Amputation and loss of an eyeball. You've had that case. I've never had one of those. So, but let's talk about underlying all of those is that it must be work related, not just something that happened at work. Mm -hmm. And so that's an issue that I think has got a lot of confusion because when you look at something like this, it oftentimes happens. Employees, they're humans. They have medical conditions outside the workplace, unrelated to the workplace that might manifest themselves in some way. You know, the, the story we all heard, the scenario is somebody that has a heart attack at lunch, somebody that has a stroke and they haven't even started their shift yet. So what, how does an employer look at this from a heat illness perspective and decide whether something may or may not be work related, even though the employee had a medical condition? That's a great question. I think it's going to, favorite lawyer answer, depend on the facts that you know. So if you're looking at a situation like the porta potty incense that we talked about, where it's an employee that gets to the job site, it's in the morning, there's nothing to indicate there's an elevated temperature, work has not yet started. To me, that's a presumption that it's not work related. If it happens in the middle of a work day, I think you're going to have a harder time saying that it's not work related if the employee has been outside for an extended amount of time so far during that day. Another thing that will come up and that came up in my pool cleaner case is, did you know this worker had a medical condition that could make that worker more, more sensitive to heat, right? Um, and in this instance, the worker never told the employer that. And they had a, a post-offer medical questionnaire that asked the employee to disclose certain medical conditions. And the employee did not disclose any condition that would have made him more susceptible to heat illness. So that's one of the questions that OSHA will ask is, did you know that this worker had this condition? Well, I'm, let's focus on that because I think that for our listeners is something to consider. Do you as an employer use a post-offer medical questionnaire? And, you know, no, no one answer is right for everyone. As I said earlier, this is not legal advice for a specific scenario, but something that an employer ought to consider is the use of this document. It is something that could, could be lawful under the Americans with Disabilities Act. You're not asking the question, the medical question before an offer is made, but if you do it on a post-offer basis and you're asking medical questions, then you, and you know you're gonna have workers working in, in hot conditions, you ask questions specifically about conditions they have, medications they're taking, anything that might cause them to be more susceptible to illness or injury uh, in the hot environment. So that's one way that employers go. It'll be interesting to see how OSHA addresses that, something that, that employers can lawfully do, mm -hmm. they have a right to do under the ADA. How will they address that with regard to the knowledge of someone's condition under a new standard? That's a great question. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And in a similar fashion, while not related to medical condition, when it comes to training employees, it's important to let them know what other lifestyle factors might make them more susceptible to a heat issue, right? Drinking alcohol the night before, and then you start work early in the morning, that can make you more susceptible. High amounts of caffeine can make you more susceptible. Energy drinks that we see a lot of workers drinking during the workday can make you more susceptible. I've had an increased number of questions and scenarios that clients call about involving energy drinks. Mm -hmm. Something mm -hmm. to consider is, is, is what is the number of energy drinks that might put someone more susceptible to dehydration? 
so I think something employers probably had to give that some some thought towards that as well. Acclimatization, I said we would talk about it just briefly. That simply means if somebody has not been working in a hot environment, they're new to you as an employer, uh, give them some time to get used to the heat. Mm-hmm. But we don't know exactly what, how much time. You know, OSHA has talked about, you know, a, a rule of 20%. NIOSH says it as well, which is that workers should only work 20% of the normal duration of their first day, and then you increase 20% thereafter. I don't know whether that works or not, but at least the idea there is don't immediately throw somebody into a hot work environment if, they ha- if they're not used to it. Absolutely. Okay, so that's what's going on in the world of heat illness from OSHA. We don't know when this new rule is going to come out, but meanwhile, you know, employers really ought to consider the wide range of things that could be done here. Doing something rather than nothing, I think, is really what we'd like our listeners to consider uh, at their employer is what is the something you could do in the range of things in order to uh, keep workers safe and hopefully avoid having to deal with ocean. Great tips. Thanks again for having me on the podcast today. And I hope everyone has a great summer. All right. Thanks everybody. Stay cool. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.